I know that folks are tired of seeing tents on the street. They're tired of finding people asleep in their doorways in the morning. Uh, I work downtown every day. I'm well aware of it. That's the voice of today's guest, King County Executive Dow Constantine. I'm Jeff Schulman, a marketing professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, and I am pleased to be bringing you a brand new fifth season of Seattle Growth Podcast. The focus of this season is a topic that affects everyone in Seattle. That is homelessness. Whether you find yourself at risk of homelessness, or you see the tents lining the streets and parks, or you've seen fellow community members at the edge of survival, you have likely been affected by this key issue facing our city. In this season of Seattle Growth Podcast, you will have an opportunity to get to know some of the members of our community who are experiencing or who have experienced homelessness. You'll hear from civic leaders about efforts to address this challenge, and you'll hear stories of how individuals and organizations are working to make a difference. Seattle Growth Podcast is all about bringing a constructive dialogue to controversial issues facing us all. To this end, you'll hear from fellow community members who offer a variety of different viewpoints. Some of the voices this season will help you become a better informed citizen as the city wrestles with decisions that could profoundly affect you and shape Seattle for decades to come. Other voices will share simple ways to take action that could help you feel empowered to improve your community and the lives around you. I hope you will join me on this journey in the fifth season of Seattle Growth Podcast. You be prepared to learn, feel, and get inspired. To kick things off, today's episode gives an overview of the regional approach to addressing homelessness in my interview with King County Executive Dow Constantine. There are these causes that are bringing people into homelessness, and we have to take on that challenge, the inputs as well, if we're going to finally get ahead of it. The episode also features a check-in on housing affordability with Robert Wasser, a director of the Northwest Multiple Listing Service and owner of Prospera Real Estate. This month, at the beginning of the month, I, I saw some more data points where I had to stop and say, all right, this might be some form of a change. How big it's going to be, time will tell, but we're definitely seeing a change. But first, to put a face on the issue of homelessness, let's go back in time to one of my favorite interviews from season one, when I met Ty living on the streets outside City Hall. I'm outside City Hall with Ty Sanders. Where'd you move here from? Uh, actually, I moved here from Oklahoma. So, you know, by word of mouth, you know, from a friend, you know, I had to come up here and check it out for myself. And, and he says it's every, you know, thing that, you know, everybody said it is. So I'm up here trying to give it a run and see what it has to offer for me. And hopefully, good Lord's will, it might pan out in the long run. And if it does, I'm here to stay for the long haul and, and maybe that, you know, my seed can sit there and seed and we can, you know, keep on prospering, you know, in this beautiful city. But it is beautiful. And, and where, uh, when did you move here? Uh, actually, I've been here for probably about four months now. So about four months. You know, it's one reason I came up here. You know, they said they're eating, so I brought my fork. You know what I mean? So hopefully that, you know, I can have the opportunity, you know, to, you know, better my situation and, 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 and you know, eat good like everybody else is eating good. And what were your friends telling you that got you to come out here? Um, that the jobs are good, you know. I mean, like I said, they said that, you know, everybody's eating up here. So that's why I came up here. So I like to eat. So I wanted to come up here and eat with everybody else. <laughs> and have you found work? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, what have you found? Um, actually, I'm sitting here working uh, for MID, the downtown cleaning crew. So I got the opportunity to venture off into that. How hard was it to find work once you got here? I mean, uh, if your background and everything is up to par, then, you know, the jobs is not hard to find here. They're, they're, doors are opening, and, and, you know, it's all depending on what you're looking for, you know. But it's here if you want it. And so where do you live? Do you live in the city? Um, actually, you know, I'm my current situation, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm homeless. But, you know, I mean, I have a job and I have uh, other opportunities down the way, other situations that are lined out. You know, but, you know, patience is the key. You got to be patient and, you know, everything will fall in place when you least expect it. But yeah. and what kind of resources are available to you uh, being homeless here in Seattle? Uh, there's tons. I mean, they're posted everywhere you go. You know, I mean, you, you're crazy if you don't, you know, take the opportunity to, you know, I mean, take advantage of it. Because I don't think there's any other place in the country that is like Seattle right now. You know, and, and, and Seattle puts you in a situation where, you know, you can put yourself, you know, on your feet, 
you know, it's all what you're looking for, you know what I mean? And it's depending on what your goals is. But if you got any kind of goals and, you know, you set them high, man, they're here. You know, you just got to keep on grinding and eventually, you know, that door will open up, you know, because like they say, 99% of the jobs are not advertised by us. It's by word of mouth. It's all who you know to get where you're going. And maybe, you know, you might put yourself into, you know, that, that small job that, you know, it, it's putting money in your pocket, but, you know, you're not getting rich, but you might bump into somebody in that situation that'll turn around and, you know, open up another door for you. And as long as you keep on grinding and doing what you're doing, eventually you, you'll reach your goal and get to the top. Where have you been able to find shelter? Uh, it's everywhere, you know. You got you got City Hall, you, you, you know, you got the Queen Anne, you got... It just all depends, you know. Like I said, it's posted everywhere, you know, and you just got to do your do your research and, you know, and find a spot that is comfortable for you, you know, the elbow room and the space, you know, so you can do what you got to do to better your situation, you know. But there's, there's many resources out here and there's many shelters out here, you know, and it's all what you're looking for, you know. But other than that, it's here. And have you been able to find a community of people in your situation? Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of people. Um, that are out here that is in the same similar, uh, similar situation that I am, you know, and, and you know we're all out here trying to grind. You know, everybody has their lane that they're in. You know, I have the lane that I'm in, and I'm I'm trying to run full steam ahead, and they have their lane, and they're running full steam ahead, and hopefully, you know, maybe within the next six months or to a year, however long it takes, that you know, when we're walking down the street, bumping to them same people that was in the same similar situation as you. You know what I mean? And they can sit there and tell your story, how you came here and you went from the bottom. Hopefully you try to go to the top. And so what are you doing to try to get to the top? First, it starts it starts off by hitting that alarm clock and, wake, and waking up. You know what I mean? You got you to gotta put effort into it because you know, nobody's, nobody's going to hand you anything out here. You know, you got to get up here and you got to grind lights out every day. You know, and you keep on grinding out lights out every day. And like I said, the, you know, the opportunities to open up, doors to open up, you know what I mean? And, you know, some people might be in situations that they might have felonies. Everybody's circumstances is different. But if they keep on digging and, 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 and looking and start, and start just going off of what so-and-so said and this and this and this, you know, if you go out there and, and get you get a bus pass or orchid card and start hopping on some of these buses, you know, and, and, and just venture out, and you'll see there's more out there. You know what I mean? A lot of people say, well, Seattle's expensive. Yeah, I get it. You know what I mean? But then and again, it's like I said, it's all who you bump into to put yourself in that situation. You know, you just got to keep on hitting here, hitting here, and hitting here. And after a while, you know, something will wind up panning out for you because there, there is there's places out there, you know what I mean, that accommodate your situation or whatever you're sitting there trying to get a hold of, you know, to, to benefit you. But it is out here. I've I seen it. and I'm still seeing it. You know, it might not be on a large scale where it's like it's putting a dent in the numbers for people that are homeless out here, but it's 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 out there. I see the stories, I, I bump into friends and all da da da, and they're doing the same thing like everybody else is. You got to keep on grinding, and you never know, because you wake up that next day and you hit that corner, you might you might get that blessing. And when you do get that blessing, you know, take the opportunity to run with that blessing. Just keep on grinding. That's, nice. the, only thing, that's the only thing you can do. What do you hope to see in Seattle as it continues to grow? I just hope the city continues to grow and, you know, keep on giving people the opportunity, you know, to put themselves in a better situation, you know what I mean, and, and let everybody eat on all levels, you know what I mean, because it's different levels, you know, everybody ticks a certain way, you know, and I just hope they keep on giving the opportunities and the resources and so people can keep on doing what they got to do to, you know, better their situation. Ty, thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity to meet you and hear your story. All right, appreciate it. As a growing number of community members such as Ty find themselves living outside or in shelters here in Seattle and in King County as a whole, what can the region do to address this issue? To hear about some of the efforts underway and the reasoning behind them, join me as I sit down with King County Executive Dow Constantine. I'm here with King County Executive Dow Constantine. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we're here to talk about homelessness and the challenges facing King County. But before we get into that, what exactly do you do? What, what is the role <laughs> of King County Executive? Well, so I'm basically the mayor of King County, which is a jurisdiction of now nearly 2.2 million people. 
Uh, it's larger than 13 states, one of the largest counties in the nation. And we uh, handle a combination of region-wide services and local services for the quarter million people who live in unincorporated King County. So the regional services are uh, things like transit, you know, your metro transit system, uh, stormwater, public health. Uh, most of the criminal justice system is actually assigned to counties by state law. So it is a big job. We have a eleven billion or so dollar biennial budget and uh, manage about fourteen thousand employees. Um, and you know our our job is to kind of do those formal duties and also try to try to organize all the other independently elected officials and all the players in the community toward um, tackling community wide challenges. And I guess uh, one of those that's on everyone's mind right now is homelessness. And so before we get into the question that's on everybody's mind, what are ways you touch the lives of people in Seattle? So like where do uh, in our day-to-day lives, where do we know that your work has affected us? Well, if you if you ever see a bus go by, that's us. And uh the work that I've been doing uh over the last 9 years now as executive has really been directed toward increasing uh high capacity transit service. And of course, we're the lead partner in Sound Transit as well and I led the battle to get Sound Transit 3 approved. But also, uh, you know, the court system. Uh, So Seattle has its own police department, but when they arrest someone, they bring them to the county jail. They go to the county court. They have the county prosecutor. And those are all services we provide across the region. There's an awful lot of things you don't see. I mean, unglamorous things. You know, when your garbage goes away, it ends up county landfill. When you uh, when you flush the toilet, the water goes to the county sewage treatment plants scattered around the region. Uh, these are things that need to happen in order for our economy to function, for people to be able to live good life here. So we're going to talk about homelessness and, and what you're working on to tackle this challenge. But nine years in this role, public service, what's motivating you to serve the public in this capacity? Well, you know, uh, I was raised here. And I really do love and cherish this place. My uh, grandfather was actually an alumnus of this very business school at the University of Washington and played on the, on the Husky football team. And I'm a pretty hardcore dog, you know, three degrees and the better part of a decade here on campus. I won't tell you which decade, but <laughs> it wasn't a recent one. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I have this kind of compulsion to try to leave this place better than I found it to protect the things we all love about it and to channel the growth and change that's coming in order that it can be of the most benefit to the people. And so we've got a lot of growth in this town and in the region. But while there's a lot of money and people moving in, there's also a lot of people now living on the streets. Can you tell me a little bit about the scope of the homeless challenge in King County? Well, it is unprecedented, certainly in my lifetime. I mean, if you go all the way back to the Depression, you would have seen this many people displaced. But uh, it is, I think, a result of the speed of the change and the dramatic scope of the change that's happening in our region. There's a lot more money, a lot of new money, and that money is chasing a housing supply that's not keeping up. Uh, and so folks who are earning less are being squeezed out. There's, uh, by some estimates, uh, a shortfall of some 90,000 units available to those who uh, are at the bottom end of the income scale, working, making money, but not making enough to be able to afford even the least expensive housing. Before we get to how the region is, is tackling this challenge, can you speak a little bit about who this challenge matters to? So does it matter just to the person who's living on the edge or living on the streets, or are there other people that are affected by this? I mean, I, your question kind of answers itself, because it should matter to all of us, right? Uh, we are our brother's keeper, and furthermore, our region works better when everybody is able to contribute. And it's very hard to contribute, to work hard, to improve your uh, position, to be able to pay taxes or to uh, do the other work that keeps community going if you're just trying to survive, Right. Uh, and that's that becomes a drag on on uh, not just the economy but on our on our society. And so we want folks to be to all be able to excel, to flourish, to to do their best, to succeed, and and give back. And when they do, we are all uh, incrementally better off. And so it's in our interests, in our financial interests, 
And it's a moral imperative that we figure out a way to make that happen. What are some ways that the region is currently tackling this issue uh, that are working? What, what are some strengths of how the region is tackling this challenge of homelessness? Well, you know, we have gotten much better at getting people rehoused. Uh, the initial reaction to homelessness is always, you know, to see the person on the street, to go into kind of emergency response or crisis response mode and get them into shelter. But the, the, the real key thing is to get beyond that and get them to the point where they're not dependent and they are able to be securely housed and actually working on making more money, taking care of their kids, et cetera. We've gotten much better at that. Uh, we've doubled the number of folks we're able to rehouse uh, between 2013 and 2017, and we have reduced dramatically the number of people who once helped fall back into homelessness. It's only, uh, I think, a little over 8% uh, now folks who get this help and get rehoused end up uh, back on the streets within two years. So that is a very good sign. But, you know, the flip side of that, and I hope we'll talk about it more, is that the numbers keep increasing because there are these causes that are bringing people into homelessness. And we have to take on that challenge, the inputs as well, if we're going to finally get ahead of it. What inputs do you see? Uh, well, of course, the housing uh, market. You know, you're a you're a business professor. You know that in time, the market will achieve equilibrium. In time, the market will catch up with uh, what the demand is here, and uh, this boom will not continue forever. With more and more people coming here, earning higher and higher salaries, uh, things will fluctuate. And and but the the fact is that a lot of damage happens in the interim. Uh, because this is not purely an economic equation. This is people's lives. And uh, particularly for the kids who end up on the streets, this is not a, a, a transient experience. This is a experience that sticks with them, that actually affects their brain development and can hinder them later on in life. So we want to make sure that uh, we are attending to those challenges now and that we're doing what we can to, to correct um, uh places where the market is failing to provide the amount of housing, the type of housing that the people working here need. Beyond the housing, there are things that happen in people's lives that make it much more difficult for them to ramp up and be able to compete for housing, compete for jobs, do the things they need to do in a changing economy. Uh, one big suite of challenges is behavioral health, whether it's mental health or um, addiction. Uh, there is simply not enough treatment on demand, treatment the day you reach your hand out and say, I got a problem, I need help. And we're working with uh, Balmer Group uh, to really increase the number of places in this county where you can get treatment on demand. There are uh, 20 or so nonprofit organizations that provide treatment. Very few of them can guarantee you that the day you come in, you will get help. Uh, they have to put you on a list, call you back, and, um, and by that time, it may be too late. So that's one important area that we need to fix. That project is an example of moving beyond the traditional model of government taxpayer set up program, one size fits all, administered by uh, public employees. We are moving into an area where there's going to be a lot more public, private, and philanthropic partnership, a lot more engagement with everyone in the community uh, to be able to really respond to the scope of this challenge. Speaking of what we're moving to, can you tell me a little bit about one thing that's been in the news lately, uh, One Table? Yeah. Uh, so One Table is a, is a group that uh, I set up with Mayor Durkin of Seattle and Mayor Nancy Backus of Auburn. And about 75 folks representing uh, the, the sectors that have traditionally been involved in the zone, government and service providers, nonprofit service providers, but also businesses and also philanthropy and also uh, people who work in housing and behavioral health and people with lived experience in homelessness, people who've actually walked this walk. And our goal is to move beyond what we've been doing in the past to include all of these sectors in the community because we really believe that ultimately a collective impact model is the way to solve a challenge on this scale and to move away from only focusing on responding to crises and trying to 
help people once they've hit rock bottom, but move upstream to these root causes and take those on so that we start to stem the flow of people into homelessness. It's by far the least expensive uh, and most helpful thing we can do. And to really engage the entire community, individuals as well, around a shared vision, that point on the horizon toward which we're going. So it's it's a difficult but necessary work to align everyone. Many people are doing great work, right? Um, people are building housing. People are building shelter. People are working to get folks off drugs and alcohol. People are doing all sorts of work, but it's a lot of um, uh, uh, siloed projects. In order for us to get the full value, we have to have some shared understanding of what the complete puzzle looks like, then who's going to handle each one of the pieces and which pieces aren't spoken for or are under-resourced. And then we need to agree on how to get the resources to do that. If we can reach that shared vision and that mutual commitment to, for each of us to do our part, this community has easily the resources to be able to tackle this challenge. Why businesses? Why would businesses be involved in this effort? Uh, well, you know, there are a number of reasons. Uh, one, businesses need workers, and we have an awful lot of folks here who could be great workers but need to get connected to training and education and then and in that first rung of the ladder that will allow them to succeed. Um, second, this is the community in which those business leaders and all of their employees live their lives. And they, like all of us, uh, want to make sure that it's a healthy place where everyone has a chance to thrive. And that is a... Um, I think a natural thing for business to to want that it you know part of the attraction of this place is the natural environment part of the attraction is a vibrant cultural life you know part of the attraction needs to be that this is a place where people care about one another and that we're not uh, uh, allowing uh, our streets to continue to be filled with folks who've who've been abandoned who've who've been written off uh, that's not the kind of place where a new recruit coming from around the world wants to wants to come to to make their life. So I think there's a strong business purpose. And obviously, if you're in a, a business that relies on uh, the image of a city or a region, if you're in the visitor uh, industry, for example, it's not okay for all of our shortcomings to uh, to confront everyone who comes here. I think that we need to do better, and I think our business leadership understands that. And so how do you define success? You're bringing business, philanthropy, government, uh, bringing them all together and trying to coordinate an effort to solve a significant challenge here in Seattle. I, do you think you could solve it all, get homelessness down to zero? I mean, I think you could make a dramatic change. And I think you have to measure success by the reduction in the number of people who are homeless and the reduction in the number of people who are in danger of becoming homeless. The increase in what was called back in my parents' day upward mobility, where you may have been born into a family that has not succeeded economically, but you have a chance to do better. And we're providing the infrastructure, not just the physical infrastructure, but the social infrastructure, education, and, and, and the other things you need in order to be able to bring your full value to the community. It is a reasonable thing for us to expect that no one will be homeless, even though we know there will always be folks who are having problems that push them out of housing and into the street. It is a reasonable thing for us to hold ourselves and individuals um, accountable and to make sure that when somebody becomes homeless, we inquire as to what has caused this and connect them with the things they need to get back on their feet and start to contribute again. You know, in the end, we need to measure success by um, our ability to link arms and do the best by our fellow residents. And I think that we are on a path to do that. I mean, there have been some pretty public squabbles between different sectors of the community over the last couple of months. Uh, I think that we need to put those behind us and move on to focusing on the root causes and what we can do collectively to solve them common criticism of the city of Seattle's efforts and the county's efforts is that people are seeing the expenditures go up, but the how the number of homeless people is also going up. How do you respond to those kinds of criticism? Well, you know, the county has really brought 
this um, focus on accountability, on uh, on measuring uh, success, on setting clear outcomes that we're we're seeking, and then ha- holding ourselves and the providers accountable for achieving them. And once we help a provider that's not succeeding to try to increase their capacity, if they still can't do it, redirecting the funds elsewhere. That is a discipline we think needs to be brought to the entire system, regardless of the source of funds. Um, we cannot be afford to fund good intentions. We have to fund clearly defined outcomes that we're seeking. A lot of the focus has been on crisis response and the very expensive work of helping people out once they've fallen into homelessness. If you don't attend to the causes, you're not going to be able to stem the flow because there are forces that are much greater than uh, the geography of this region that are causing these things to happen. Uh, The uh, increasing income inequality, the opioid epidemic. Um, these are challenges that go well beyond our borders. Um, but you know, if we can focus on them here at home, we can begin to slow the inflow. And ultimately, the rather robust work we're doing on crisis response and rehousing uh, will flip the equation. And there's a, another common concern that if we spend money trying to solve homelessness, that it's just going to be more attractive to bring in more people who are homeless. How do you respond to you know, the, this magnet theory. I mean, the data doesn't really bear that out. You know, when, when they go out and they study who's on the streets, they ask people uh, where their last residence was, uh, where they came from. Uh, most folks are coming from King County in the Central Puget Sound region. They may have been drawn closer to where the services are provided. They may be on the streets of Seattle rather than the town where they were last housed because Seattle has been more generous in providing um, shelter or other services. But um, with some exceptions, most folks are not traveling halfway across the country to sleep on a more comfortable sidewalk. That's not what one does, right? So that is a little bit of a, a false argument. At the same time, we think, I think, that this entire region needs to share in both paying for and uh, accommodating everyone who's facing housing instability. So it can't just be Seattle or a few cities. Uh, we need to have housing that's uh, artificially affordable, that's subsidized for those who really can't make it uh, across all of the urban centers that are going to soon be connected by high-capacity transit. Uh, we need to make sure that services for those who are really struggling, behavioral health services, for example, uh, are available around the region and not just in downtown Seattle. Uh, I think that we need to you know, continue the maturing process that we saw exhibited in Sound Transit of this place becoming more comfortable with itself as a metropolitan region and not a collection of uh individual cities because that's how people live live their lives right only city council members and mayors and executives care about these dotted lines on the map everybody else may live in one municipality and work in another one and send their kids to school somewhere else and and we have to be able to approach these systems in the same way the way the state was set up works against that there was a deep distrust of centralized power Uh, We have 39 cities in my county with 39 mayors and 39 city councils. And that doesn't begin to count, you know, the 19 school districts or the port or any of the other special districts or the other counties that are part of this metropolitan region. There's a lot of uh, individual interests and individual authority to herd together toward a shared goal. But we have to do that. And one of the th- breakthroughs in homelessness, I think, is going to be this path that um, Mayor Durkin and I have set out on to identify the best governance structure where we can actually invest a regional authority, whether it's the county or whether it's a collection of cities or something else, with the power to spend money and make decisions, right? And when we do that, uh, we will be moving much closer to the point where we can l- really leverage, maximize the, the, the resources and accelerate ahead of this problem. Somebody listening at home just heard a little bit about One Table, how you're bringing together different city governments, businesses, and philanthropy to try to get to the root causes of homelessness and, and help people out of it. When is the first time that they are going to be able to say, wow, 
this is working or you know when when will somebody who's listening at home feel be touched by what ha- comes out of your one table efforts well i think there there are two tracks here right and then the first is dealing with the long term intractable problems that we need to uproot and fix so housing and housing means yeah publicly subsidized housing particularly for those who are deeply debilitated who aren't going to be able to get back on their feet uh, and there's only a few thousand folks who fit into that category but who need some permanent stable housing with services. But then uh, additional housing that's simply subsidized and can be done fully public, public-private, um, with incentives to the private sector, including tax incentives, uh, to begin to right some of the inconsistencies in the market. Finally, we really need the private market to work. And that means working with developers and the building community to identify the impediments to people being able to make money building housing of the type that folks working here can afford, right? I mean, everybody who can swing a hammer is working right now. And a lot of the market is going toward the folks who are making more money, which, you know, makes sense. We have to figure out how to ramp up the building of housing for uh, average working people. That will change the economics of the market and ultimately accelerate that day when it's back into equilibrium. Uh, But the other issues, no exit from any system into homelessness, out of the jail system, out of the foster system, out out of the mental health system. We need to make sure that people make a seamless transfer into secure housing and a path to self sufficiency. Treatment on demand, reforming uh, foster care so that uh, kids are able to actually make it through those difficult late teen years. Um, and then decriminalizing homelessness and behavioral health crises so that we're not taking people into the justice system where it becomes dramatically more difficult for them to succeed. And finally, jobs. Jobs. And this is where the business community can be of tremendous help. What do we need to do? to connect not just people who are homeless, but people who are stuck economically to the kinds of jobs that are being created here now. Yes, a lot of people will figure it out on their own, but if you can get them to training and to education, and that education leads to that entry job, uh, we're going to be in a much better position to, to be able to confidently say what folks used to say, that a rising tide lifts all boats. And so then the effect of the one table and, and kind of your efforts is it going to be kind of more behind the scenes that one day we'll we'll wake up in a, a better King County? Or will we be able to say, ah, I see fewer people struggling? Or I know that folks are tired of seeing tents on the street. They're tired of finding people asleep in their doorways in the morning. Uh, I work downtown every day. I'm well aware of it. And uh, I think that even in parallel with solving these root causes and dealing with the long-term challenges, we have the ability in this moment of bringing together the entire community to accelerate our work to keep people safe now and, uh, and get those tents off the street. The reason you're seeing more tents on the street in downtown Seattle today is not just because there are suddenly that many more homeless people, but because the city cleared out the jungle. You weren't able to see them before, the jungle below Beacon Hill. You weren't able to see folks before. But they're pushed out from under I-5 and pushed down from the woods, and suddenly they're on the streets downtown where you can see them. Folks who are homeless and were not yet able to securely and properly house need to be in either a a structure or a community that has security, that has, uh, you know, plumbing facilities, that uh, is safe and ultimately gives them a chance to get the services they need to get back on their feet rather than having to struggle every single night just to survive. That is unhelpful to anyone. The big question that a lot of people always ask is, who pays for this and why should they pay for it? First of all, I think that we should be taking on the funding just as we need to take on the challenges on a region-wide basis. I don't think that this kind of... um, Uh, approach of random cities coming up with funding to do random things gets us as far toward our goal as it really should. And what we have to do, and this requires us to work with the legislature, is identify a public funding source that will make up for whatever the shortfalls are. But first, to inventory the public and private and nonprofit resources that are available. 
to ask what each of these players wants most to do in order to get us to our shared goal. Um, you know, Amazon is building a shelter in one of their buildings. Vulcan is building low-income housing down in the valley. Uh, the Balmer Group is helping us with a pay-for-success model to increase behavioral health. All of those things are important pieces, but we got to figure out how they work together and where the gaps are. And then, are there private funds we can use to fill some of those gaps? Are there organizations, like businesses, who can suddenly say, we can do more on this job connectedness issue, that, that one of these six kind of categories under one table. And then, yeah, um, it's likely there's still a, a shortfall of public funding to get the rest of the job done. And we need to work with the legislature to get a fair, sustainable, and region-wide funding source to be able to accomplish that. What do you think King County residents can expect when it comes to homelessness um, in the near short term, in the months ahead, and then in the years ahead? I think that we will see not just an increase in the resources devoted, but an increase in the effectiveness of the deployment of those resources. And I think it's going to come with a change in expectations. We need to expect that we're not going to have folks in our streets. We need to recognize that this is not normal and it's not acceptable. And, you know, I think folks also need to realize you can't just tell somebody to move because there's nowhere to move to. We've got to, we've got to work with them to figure out where, where folks can go that's safe, that's sanitary, and that has access to the things they need to be able to get back on their feet. And homelessness is inherently a, a story of despair. Do you have any stories of hope that can maybe inspire people that there's a better future ahead. We did a pilot where we partnered with several dozen community organizations. We gave them some flexible funds. They asked the, say, um, young, struggling, single mom, what, what do you need to stay housed? And she might say, I really need to get my car fixed so I can get to work, or I'm behind on my rent and I think I'm going to get evicted. I need to catch up. They are able to write a check. And in doing that, we prevented four thousand people in the first year, including about 2,400 children, from becoming homeless. Now, that is a good news story that not many people have heard. But the fact is, you know, the, the challenge on the streets would be much worse and the damage rolling forward would be dramatically greater had we not done this little thing. It cost maybe a tenth of what it costs to get somebody out of homelessness. Any concluding thoughts on homelessness in Seattle, uh, in King County, and your role and efforts to address it? I hear a lot of anxiety about the rapid pace of change in our region. Uh, folks feel um, insecure a lot of the time. I mean, obviously many people are succeeding, but many are feeling as though the world's passing them by or they may be displaced, particularly those who built this region and are now on fixed incomes. And we are really focusing on the notion of whether you just arrived here or whether you've lived here for generations, this is your home, this is your place, you belong here, and we, not just the government, but we as a community, have your back. And the change, if, if we view it um, not with fear, but view it as an opportunity, can be harnessed to uh, help not just those who are, who are uh, landing the big job at a global corporation, but to help all of the people here to be able to do better, to live more securely, more comfortably, to restore the things that have been lost here, to increase the opportunities for the next generation to be able to get that education, to get those job connections and to succeed. And, and you know, just as my family's story built around this university is one of uh, each generation doing a little bit better and, and taking advantage of these, these public goods like this great public university. Um, so too can we provide those opportunities for, for everyone who's here today and who's coming here. And I am very, very optimistic that when all is said and done, this place will be better than it was with more opportunity and more security for people. Executive Constantine, thank you very much for your time and perspective. I appreciate the opportunity to hear your voice today. Thank you. Since King County Executive Constantine mentioned housing affordability as one of several initiatives to address homelessness, let's turn our attention to what is happening with real estate in Seattle. I recently sat down with the director of the Northwest MLS, who has uncovered some interesting findings in the data that could impact those looking for a home and also those looking to sell. Join me as I sit down with Robert Wasser. 
I'm here with Robert Wasser, owner of Prospero Real Estate and director of the Northwest Multiple Listing Service. Robert, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me back. All right. So you were in the first season of Seattle Growth Podcast, and you have now become the media's go-to guy talking about real estate. Uh, you've been on Cairo Radio, quoted in the Puget Sound Business Journal. It seems that other people are recognizing your skills as a data geek, as you as you said in that first season. Tell me... Wh- why are you a data geek? What motivates you to dig into the numbers so much? Well, I was once a very young guy starting a real estate brokerage, trying to find a way to provide an edge to the people I worked with and maybe overcome that that age objection. I was, what was I, like 23 when I started the brokerage. And I just think it's a really interesting time right now. You know, going back to, to 2012 when I was tracking the data, I saw signs of a shift then. Um, and sure enough, look what happened. We've had six years of pretty phenomenal price gains. And I've been on the lookout, especially over these last couple of years, for signs of, you know, how, how much longer can that possibly go on? And starting last month, I started seeing a couple of these data points. And then this month, at the beginning of the month, I, I saw some more data points where I had to stop and say, all right, this might be some form of a change. How big it's going to be, time will tell. But we're definitely seeing a change. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've seen recently in terms of rents? Yeah, rents are finally starting to drop in some segments of the market. There's been a a whole bunch of apartments coming on last year and then even more this year. And if you drive through downtown Seattle on I-5, it's impossible to miss all the cranes. Uh, And those coming on have started to soften rents on the lower uh, size part of the market pretty significantly. Uh, But as it relates to some of the bigger units, three bedrooms and, and up, we aren't seeing any drops there, at least uh, from the data that I've tracked from MLS rental listing history. What have you found with the MLS renting history? And let's talk about families trying to stay off the streets and two bedrooms and maybe three bedrooms for some of the larger families. What are you seeing in those rents and help put them into perspective? I tracked uh, the previous 90 days for two bedrooms to see what those had rented for. Uh, and then compared that to the same time period the year prior, and I found that uh, this year rents had dropped 9.1% for two-bedroom units uh, that were listed on the MLS. They dropped to 2500 from 2750 last year, so we're starting to see a pretty good dent in that part of the market. What's this 2500 rep- represent? How, how was that calculated? That, that's, the, that's the median rent price of, of the uh, two-bedrooms that were listed and rented over the last 90 days. And the MLS is a good a good point of reference for that because when agents have to change it over the status to rented, they also are required to put in a rental amount. So we have real data point to work with, although not as big of a uh, sample as going through everything that shows up on Craigslist, but data points nonetheless. So you're saying we're seeing decreases in rent on two bedrooms and one bedrooms and studios and three bedrooms, same thing? No, I'm not seeing it in three bedrooms. That was one of the first questions I had when uh, going back to when all these apartments were being built. As I was thinking about a rental property I have, and will it be affected as a three-bedroom unit by all of this uh, apartment growth, I was kind of falling back on, well, I'm not seeing many three-bedroom options being built out there or bigger. Uh, so I went in and I looked specifically to find how did three bedrooms uh, do compared to two bedrooms and three bedrooms are basically unchanged year over year and they're currently uh, the previous 90 days were at three thousand and ten dollars median for a three-bedroom unit listen on the mls let's talk about houses that are available for sale are you noticing any trends one way or another going on now i noticed in may that more new listings hit the market uh, in seattle that month than in any other month over the previous uh, eight years so supply is up, and that happened then again in June. June, more listings than May. Um, so supply is up. Uh, while at the same time, though, demand has dropped, uh, close sales were down 29% year over year in June. Uh, and that shift in supply and demand is already showing up in the prices. Prices don't typically drop from May to June, uh, but they did in Seattle and King County. For Seattle, it was the first May to June drop since 2013 in King County. I have data going back to 2003, and I can't find a single May to June drop there. So it is definitely abnormal for it to happen that time of the year. Uh, and it was a pretty noticeable drop of uh, about 1.5% in, in from May to June. So just to help people understand, so 1.6% drop in home prices – 
How many thousands of dollars does that mean? In May, the median price uh, residential home, so excluding condos, in Seattle hit 800000 But we are talking about about a $12,000 difference. You say, you know, this just doesn't happen very often. You can't, you have to go back many years in, in King County uh, for a May to June drop. Why May, Why is May to June drop? Help people understand why that's a rare occurrence. So the spring season is when most buyers are out. You see the amount of uh, buying activity just increase, pending sales, closed sales, and prices tend to peak in June for the year. And if not June, it's very shortly, uh, short thereafter, July. Um, I've seen a couple blips in August, but Basically, May to June is a time where you have buying activity from April and May that are then closing in May to June. Uh, and by the time summer hits, you have fewer buyers, people are on vacation. Uh, and so prices then tend to fall throughout the summer uh, before picking back up again the next year. But for it to happen in May to June, I, like, like I said, I, in King County, I don't have data going back to 2003 showing that. Uh, there is, or, or excuse me, the, the data shows that there were no May to June drops going back to 2003 and in Seattle. Seattle. The last time that happened was 2013. And what was going on in 2013? Uh, well, more of the same. So that's that's always the question. Are we getting a blip on the radar? Uh, because at that point in time, we were coming out of the, uh, the basically the bottom of the market. Early 2012 was when things started turning around. Prices were coming up. Uh, and we we're still in a recovery and in the infancy of a recovery in 2013, which might have something to do with that variation there. Uh, whereas right now we've been at least a few years of just more of the same of supply being nowhere close to keeping pace with demand. And all of a sudden supply is up and demand is down. And we have this little bit of a price drop at an abnormal time. What do you think is going to happen going forward? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, and time will tell, and I don't have a crystal ball, but there are a few things uh, working in the favor of more price gains, and one of those being that we are still not keeping pace with population growth in terms of new housing starts. So although apartments are up, we're not building enough single-family homes to keep pace there. Um, we have a killer job market, uh, and, and, there's, and there's just a lot of things working in the favor of that demand to still be there. And I guess I'm wondering if we're going to fall back towards what a more historic level of appreciation would be before we had the real estate bubble and then the financial crisis and then this recovery. Uh, I think we're going to be, I hope we're falling back in line with that. And if you look at how much prices did increase year over year, even though they dropped from May to June, they were still up year over year, about 7%. And that's more in line with what we saw from 1989 to 2003. And so just to put into dollars, a 7% increase how many thousands of dollars does that mean? Well, if I round it to the 800000 we saw uh, two months ago, then that's $56,000 a year right now. And for home sellers, should they be scared and they sh should they be rushing to the market if they have flexibility to, to put their house up before it crashes? I think the thing that we might start to see, if we do indeed continue on this trend where we have a little bit better supply, more people willing to sell where demand might not be as high. I think the sort of things that we might start to see changing are some of the luxuries that sellers have gotten used to that are really helping to drive up prices as well. Things like uh, offer review dates and multiple offers, uh, pre-inspections, buyers waiving all their inspections, and things like escalation clauses. I think those are the sorts of things that we might start to see changing. If you know that you've been thinking a move is going to be in your future, you've been putting it off, or maybe you're someone who has an investment property that you've been wanting to liquidate, but you don't want to sell when prices are still rising. Um, maybe you're getting uh, a little, uh, or get, you're getting to that point in your life where you're becoming more risk averse and don't want to have some ups and downs, then I think it's a good time to have the conversation of what would a sale look like and does that make sense for me right now? But I, I don't think it's time for a knee-jerk reaction. So let's go back to that supply number. Can you put into perspective what's happening with the supply of homes for sale? There were more new listings that hit the market in Seattle in June than in any other month uh, since 2010. And it's a pretty significant increase when you compare the amount of active listings as of, as of the beginning of this month compared to a year prior. That is up 34%. So buyers just have a lot more to choose from right now. As people are looking for some price relief in terms of the housing and home ownership prices, can 
can we build our way out of this? Is there anything in the data regarding what happens when new housing units are built? I think any new inventory is important and that will have a positive effect. But it's interesting to look at just how high of a premium people are paying for new construction right now. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they just hadn't been building new homes for so many years uh, while, while the economy was down. Um, but looking at last month in Seattle, I logged that uh, new construction homes were 9.1% of the sales for residential homes, and they were sold at an average 22.6% higher. And so again, if you're using that 800,000 median number, just to put 22% into perspective, how many thousands of dollars are being paid more for new construction versus existing structures? Well, to try to be as accurate as I can, the median for 2018 built homes in June in Seattle was 949, basically 950,000. And anything else was at 775. So people are paying a real premium for, for new construction. So we have a, we have a backlog of, of demand, basically. So builders weren't bur- building after the bubble burst. That all went kaput, and it took a lot of years before they finally started catching on, being comfortable building, um, and they just now are starting to come close to keeping pace with population growth, the amount of housing units that need to be built to keep pace with population growth. They still haven't clipped it, uh, and there's still a backlog of all of these years, uh, these last five years, where they just weren't building anywhere near enough. So we do have a lot, uh, uh, I guess, a lack of supply that's pent up, so to speak. Any concluding thoughts? I'm just looking at the data and I'm seeing supply is up and demand is down. And all I know is that that is a good sign for a market that has been absolutely starved for inventory. Robert, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective and your expert data analysis. Thank you for having me, Jeff. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Next week, we hear from Rick Hooper, who has done work with the Seattle Uptown Alliance to find jobs and shelter for vulnerable community members. It is a problem that needs to be addressed. We want to lead with uh, uh, let's provide more services and help to folks to enable them to help themselves to get off the streets, to get on a pathway out of homelessness. You'll also hear from Tyrus Gilbertson, who experienced homelessness with his children. So, I mean, I had even had to panhandle for a few times to pay for my motel room. So I was always a shy person growing up. And uh, it's just something I, I would never want to do again. First time in my life I would have ever had to do that. It was a hard thing to do, really hard. And still to come on this season are contrasting viewpoints from former Washington State Attorney General Rob McKenna, from Daishik Kim Hawkins Jr., from City Councilmember Teresa Mosqueda, from City Councilmember Mike O'Brien, as well as noted book authors Josephine Ensign and Scott Allard, and also from community members who have experienced or are experiencing homelessness. Subscribe to Seattle Growth Podcast and iTunes so you don't miss a single episode. The stories will move you, give you valuable insights, and potentially inspire you. At this point, I want to thank all of my guests from the previous four seasons, covering the past, present, and future of Seattle music, the physical transformation of Seattle, the potential return of the Seattle Supersonics, and general issues regarding the impact of Seattle's growth. I want to thank Victor Balta, Rebecca Gorley, Michelle Ma, Peter Kelly, and Kim Eckhart for their work in the UW News and Information Office and Ed Cromer and Mike Bosey from the Foster School of Business. With their help, Seattle Growth Podcast was awarded the Case Gold Circle of Excellence Award as the top higher education podcast. But most importantly, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for listening and for engaging in important conversations about the future of our city. I'm Jeff Shulman, and I'm excited to take you on this journey in the fifth season of Seattle Growth Podcast.